you would now uh, remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21 of Romans chapter 12. But as a necessary context, all the verses that follow in, in Romans 12 uh, hinge on this, these very first two verses of the chapter. So we're going to read 14 and 21 in light of 1 and 2. So if you would follow with me uh, both those sections of Romans 12 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. At this time, uh, I want to remind you that this is Again, in Romans 12, there's been 11 chapters that have gone before us, and we have heard the gospel articulated. Uh, this Paul, who was at one time an enemy of the gospel, is now its greatest advocate. He said at one time he wished that he could be a curse for the sake of his brothers. He loves the people he's writing to. He says, I cannot wait to get to you to, to share with you this gospel that you've already known, and your faith is testified about all over the world in Rome. I can't wait to be with you and share in the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. He loves this. He prays for his enemies. He loves each and every person who he comes in contact with. And he unapologetically, without shame, shares the gospel. Now, sometimes he calls people dogs. Sometimes he, call, he tells them, hey, I wish you'd just go the whole way and emasculate yourselves, you enemies of the cross. He says some very hard things. But here he says, look, like pray for those, bless those who persecute you. Where did he get this? From Jesus. This is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul spent time with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, at a special time. And here's the thing. He is, he is setting a very high bar for us with wisdom and holiness and righteousness to be conformed to the image of God after we've received this mercy in, in this gospel, that we have a high calling. And so I was in the gym uh, a few days uh, this week, or a few, last week actually, in the morning doing preacher curls, and I overheard a fascinating statement. There were these two Christian uh, men standing close to me, and they were chatting, and one was explaining to the other one about a friend of theirs and he said, he used these words, uh, you know, so-and-so is a good Christian, but he's kind of a player. He's implying that you can be a 
quote, good Christian, but be someone who apparently hooks up with women and uses them, uh, who finds identity in that kind of a lifestyle, uh, in the same breath also be a good Christian. You see there's, there's sort of a, a, a tension rampant in that statement. You know, so, right? So how can, how can you do that? Uh, can you be characterized as a sexually immoral person and as a good Christian, whatever that means? So clearly, uh, I feel that faith is more than just a vague allegiance to a set of propositional truths or identify, identifying with a certain community of faith, of course. Uh, it's, it has more to do with who you are that you can't remain uh, a rebel against God and also identify as a good Christian, right? So today we're going to look at not, how this, uh, not that particular issue, but we're going to look at how can someone be a Christian and yet be angry and vindictive and unforgiving to those who hurt them. That's the question before us. How can someone be a Christian and continue on okay with being vindictive, resentful, and unforgiving to everyone who hurts them? That's the question. Remember Romans 1? Romans 1 says, hey, look, everybody in the whole world accepts the wrong things and loves evil and worships the creature, the creature rather than the creator. That is the default mindset of the world. And it leads to all kind of rotten fruit. That's Romans 1. Romans 2, the religious people are no better, for they, they're hypocritical against their standards, and, and they're condemned by the uh, immoral pagan people doing even better than they are sometimes. And, and, and this, this, that's, that's the people we're living with all the time. And it should be no coincidence or, no, or no, no surprise to us that we are constantly bumping up against people who are hurting us and whom we're hurting, and conflict is rampant. Uh, remember Romans 8, it says that not only are the people bad, but the world is cursed. It's groaning. Like, the whole creation is groaning. And there's a substantial need for Christians to distinguish themselves from the world, to be holy. Because God says, I am holy and you are to be holy. You're to be different from the world. But the problem is, as we've seen in verses 1 and 2, is that we're so easily conform to the pattern of this world. It's just we just take for granted that the pattern of this world is okay, right? If somebody uh, makes fun of me or hurts me, then I have the right to just hurt them back, right? That's the way it looks like. We need, we got to take this seriously is that uh, Paul's saying there's a different way. Because the default way of the world is not normal, nor is it safe, nor is it good. It's toxic and soul-crushing. That is the way of the world. Uh, the very reason Jesus died on a cross for our sins is because the world is not right. The world is in rebellion against God, and every person is in rebellion against God. Business as usual is not good, and things must change. They must change, and we have to be different as those who have received God's mercies. Now, at the outset of the Christian life, when we're born again, Perhaps you grieved over your sin. Perhaps you sought to leave the old way and follow Christ very zealously. Yet, you still live in the world. And as Paul confessed in Romans 7, oh, the good I wish I could do, I can't do, and I can't accomplish, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing. 
And we're often just most as, conf- as much conflicted as the people who disagree with us about Christ and don't embrace him. We can be, we have a sin nature which clouds our thinking. And we do the evil we do not want to do rather than the good we wish we could do. We have a tendency to be confused about what is even good and what our calling is. Now, will you admit right now that that is true? Will you say that? Like, will you say that in your heart? Like, yes, that is true. Because that is the first step. Though you have faith in Christ, you, are, you have a tendency to be tricked, fooled, deceived, and wrong about all, almost everything. Like, every single day. That is you. That is me. Okay, like, we are blinded by our own sin and the world to which we live, and we have a tendency to be conformed. We have to admit that first. And it says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? So you are going to be slaughtered for your faith, yet you will still live. This is where you're going to live. Some of us will be called to be wrongfully treated, imprisoned, harmed, hurt, and betrayed and ridiculed for the faith we have in Christ. We will be living sacrifices, but we will no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our mind because we're going to think on the gospel. We're going to think and speak to ourselves about what God says about us and who he says we are. We are not what we used to be. The old man has been crucified and no longer lives. The new man we live in Christ Okay, so we are fundamentally different than we once were. We are in Christ now before we were not. We have made, been made alive with him, and we're alive to God. And so the time now is a time to change. It's time to repent. It's time. And I pray for myself and for many of us today that today will be a seminal moment, a day where, that where we will have further clarity and intentionality to our repentance in this area of being angry, resentful, and unforgiving to people who hurt us. We can no longer do this. We have to change. The only way we can avoid being different, in fact, is that our minds must be renewed. We must be different, and the mind is the way that happens. How? When the word is read, and you have ears to hear it, God's word works powerfully in you to change you. Listen to this. In Hebrews 4.12 it says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Those things you are blind about, the word of God reveals to you and changes you because he convinces you of your need for mercy, your need to ask for help and to repent and to change and to be new. The old is no longer okay. Good enough is not good enough. The section of Romans here hinges on our embrace of everything that's been said already in Romans 1 through 11. If you know nothing about God's mercies, this section makes no sense at all. To tell me, you know, when it says in verse uh, 14, right, it says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, that makes zero sense if mercies have not been received, right? Right? Let me give you an example. Uh, in uh, the World War II era, Germany had taken over the Netherlands where Corey Ten Boom lived. She was from there. The German government sought to eliminate the Jewish people and execute them in the streets and in concentration camps. So to help out these people, the Jews, was a 
terrible crime underneath the German regime. Ten Boom's family worked for four years hiding and getting Jewish people out of the Netherlands into safety uh, and away from these guys. In February 1944, the authorities in the country learned about the Ten Boom's actions. And then Corey's father, Casper, was taken into, into custody. Corey herself, who was 51 at the time, was taken into custody. And then her sister, Betsy, was also taken into custody. And several years later, or several months later, in September, they were shipped away to a prison camp on a little cattle train uh, with people filled to the brim there with no food or water. And they arrived at Ravensbrook four days later after a four-day ride on a train. Uh, Corey's sister was extremely weak, Betsy, but they, still they were forced to work without food and water, forced to work, and then some of them were, in, were, were exterminated in gas chambers. Betsy's health failed there, and Corey tried to protect her, give her extra food from her source, or her supplies, and do all that she could do. Now, Corey was angry, of course, because her sister was literally dying before her eyes. Her sister, though, Betsy, encouraged her to be thankful for all things because their father had, uh, they were uh, church-going folks from their very earliest days, had been encouraged to read the Bible every day and to pray, and they did that. Betsy eventually died of starvation and sickness four months after they arrived there in December of that year. Soon after Betsy's death, Corey was, was released. She went home alone. Her father had died very quickly. Her sister dies. She's alone in their home in Netherlands. She felt lost. Her sister's gone. And she thought about Betsy. Betsy told her, you've got to forgive. In 1945, Corey opened a home. Uh, that was Betsy's dream. Uh, for former prisoners uh, to come into and to be uh, healed and, uh, and cared for. And then it says uh, uh, there was also people, uh, like Dutch people who worked for the Germans, like as security guards who, who she'd run into, and they were suffering for what they had done to the Jews during the war. They were traitors. And so Corey began to travel and tell her family's story, right? Eventually she wrote a book about those experiences and went on a, like a book tour, right? So two years later... Corey is speaking at a church in Germany, and the, one of the men who was one of the guards at the prison, Ravensbrück, came up to talk to her after the speech. He had become a Christian, and he asked her, he said, he, I deeply regret all the terrible things we did and I've done to you as a guard, and he asked Corey to forgive him, and he held out his hand. In her book, The Hiding Place, she writes, forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. The will can work even if the heart is cold. Jesus, help me, I prayed quietly. And then I lifted my hand. I can do that much. And she says, Lord, you supply the feeling. And so she put out her hand, and as she did, she says, something amazing happened. She began to feel a healing emotion. It was forgiveness. It filled her heart. She began to cry. He began to cry. They weeped and embraced for many minutes, right? The former guard and former prisoner reconciled. She says, I have never known God's love as deeply as I did then. And she worked with uh, victims of war the rest of her life, died in 1983 at the age of 91, honored, 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 honored all over the world. You've maybe heard of her, Corey Tenboom. She heaped burning coals on the heads of nonbelievers. 
because she expressed forgiveness and reconciliation with someone who had deeply hurt her and led to the death of her sister and her father and countless acts of evil. She'd been mistreated without cause. She was just trying to help these guys get to freedom. And that guard came to her and asked for forgiveness. And by God's grace, Corey Ten Boom gave it. And that's beautiful. It's an amazing story. It is. But there's actually more that is required than just forgiving. Just forgiving, as if that's a small thing. This is a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. But there is more that we are called to. Because in light of God's mercies, we are not just forgiven. We are declared righteous. Which means it is, it is said of you in the eternal courts of heaven that you are a good servant of God. Well done, good and faithful servant, is what you will hear. It is said of you that you are righteous and that you have never sinned and that you have always obeyed because you know who did that? Jesus did that, and that's yours by faith. So you have received not just forgiveness, but the riches of Christ. The eternal riches of Christ are yours. You've been gifted with a blessing that you could never earn. And you think about, in light of that, how should you then live? Not by mere forgiveness, but by giving blessings unearned. Blessings not according to works. You know, you treat people who've sinned against you like family. Uh, You do. That is what God does to us as he adopts us into his very own home. So that's the answer, is we love both those who repent and those who really do hate us, the believer and the non-believer. Corey was being asked by a believer who was repenting of his sin to forgive him. But we bless those who persecute us, as verse 14 says, bless them and do not curse them. You know, it would be so easy to just say, well, they have no right to my forgiveness or my blessings. But neither did we have a right to God's forgiveness and blessings. So in verse 9, Paul told us that we should shun evil and cling to good. You can't cling to anything better than the gospel. Shun evil, cling to good. You can't get any better of anything to cling to than the gospel. So if you're going to be wrong on something, be wrong on overdoing the gospel. Right? Cling to the good and shun evil. Now, I'm, I, I, we boldly got to go to the gospel. Hang on to the gospel and seek to apply it as consistently as possible. It's certainly one of the most striking exhibitions of a transformed way of thinking to forgive other people, but it is striking and a characteristic of believers to bless those who hurt you. Now, who is it that blesses in the first place? God is the one who blesses. God's the one who curses. God's the one who blesses. At one point, Jesus' disciples were following him. And he said, can we just call down curses on this, on this uh, village over there? And, and Jesus says, no, you're not going to call down ble- uh, curses on that. It's not for you. Uh, that is not our role to call down curses on those who reject Jesus or who reject us. We're to bless our persecutors and therefore to call on God to bestow his favor on them. That's what we're to do. We're to call on God to bless them, bestow his favor on them. The opposite, of course, is cursing, asking God to bring a disaster on those. 
So we want to be those who call on God's blessings for those, not their ruin, not their spiritual ruin on the person. So what's prohibited here is cursing, but what's enjoined is more than just forgiveness, but it is positively blessing those who sin against us. So Paul stresses that uh, we're to have a single-mindedness toward all people, not just those who are easy to love, not just those who serve us well, but those who make our lives extremely difficult. A single-mindedness of love toward all. Because God had a single-mindedness of love toward us when we were unworthy. And we didn't deserve it. Not according to our works, but through faith. He has loved us and blessed us. This is not new. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5.44 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's almost verbatim exactly what we just read. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6.27 it says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is two times Jesus says this. Nowhere in any writings in the history of humankind had that ever been said before Jesus said it. Nowhere. Only Jesus says that. Only Jesus says that. To bless those who curse or revile you. It had never been heard in human history until Jesus said it in the presence of those people gathered around him at the mountain. That, that our world has goodness in it and people help other people when more gets slaughtered by another tornado, here comes all the people. Building up more again. Helping, helping repair more. Why is that? Because Jesus spoke those words. We're living on that borrowed capital. Even if we don't fully embrace it, we live in a world that we think ought to be nice. We think people ought to be kind. Why? Because Jesus embodies that. And we've got it secondhand if we don't fully embrace it. Our culture is living on borrowed capital from many years of ministry, even if we deny it. We're hearing, we've heard this because Jesus has said it, but there's a time in history where it did not exist. Now, we can't take that for granted, but we have to be consistent about now trying to live it out even better. Okay, so Moses says uh, that the vengeance of the Lord he will repay, right? So God's people at that time would be at least neutral toward those who hurt them. Neutral. Let God take care of it. But no, no, no. Jesus ratchets it up and says it's not just enough to be neutral. And then, okay, as Elsa says, let it go. Okay, like we have to actually positively seek out people who hurt us and bless them. Like we have to go after them. We have to make plans to bless them. Consider the first ever enemy, the first encounter of an enemy. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.1, it says the, ser the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts. And he presented God as an enemy to Eve. He said, let's think about this. God doesn't want you to have this. God doesn't want you to be happy. If you would follow my way, you'd be better off. And so Eve and Adam looked at the evidence before them and autonomously decided to believe the enemy versus the Lord who had given them all things. He says, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan says, no, 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 you won't. Your eyes will be open. You'll be made, you'll be made like God. He's holding things back from you. But it was like, like what God had told him is that, no, 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 I'm giving you everything. I've already given you everything. Every tree in this garden is yours. Just trust me on this one. Satan lies. And he tells you there's life outside of God's plan for you. 
And you and I still believe that lie. We still believe if I show mercy and blessing to people who hurt me, it's not going to go well for me. I don't believe him. I, I, don't, I don't believe the, the one who who's risen from the dead told me to do this, and I don't believe him. Like, if he, he died, and he, say, he, he said he would, on the third day, rise again from the dead, and I don't trust him to pray for my enemies and bless those who persecute me. I don't trust him. How, is that, how does that make sense? How does that make sense? It's, I, 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 I think, like, look at verse 16. It says, at the end of verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. I let, I let my inner monologue or my world tell me what to believe, but I don't let the, the, the Word of God tell me. I'm being conformed to a pattern I don't even realize I'm being conformed to. I'm blind to it. I let people tell me, oh, man, if you, if you say something wrong, cancel them, troll them, destroy them. No prisoners, no mercy. That's how we behave. Now, vengeance is his, as Moses says in Deuteronomy. But it also says uh, retaliation is forbidden, right? But God says, no, 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 not just no retaliation, but bless, not curse. It says, do not repay evil for evil, but take thought of what is good in the sight of all people, in verse 16. Take thought. Again, we have to go out and figure out what is good in light of what God's word says, and then make a plan to go and do it. It's not just will that doesn't naturally happen. We must be intentional about doing good to those who hurt us because we have a tendency to be conformed to the pattern of the world, which means we're not going to do it. We're going to believe lies. God has a plan for our, for our engagement with the enemies. Uh, Andrew Brunson, who was a minister in Turkey, was wrongfully imprisoned for two years for doing nothing, essentially. It was a political situation. He was a Christian minister there, and he learned in his time there. He was broken by it, first of all. But he says in his second year, he kind of turned the corner, and he learned to sing and to pray for his enemies in Turkey. And he still prays for them, even though he's been set free. 2018. Verse 17, it says, Do good. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So we should be intentional about doing good, being, living our life before others, that when they accuse you, they may be ashamed. Being publicly good. You know, Paul would certainly want us to understand that good is not just what the world thinks is good, but it's what God says is good. We can't just let the world's definition of good drive us. Sometimes we're going to butt heads with what the world thinks is good, and, uh, and that's, that's going to be inevitably happening. You know, and, and so uh, our answer is we don't compromise where God says something is clearly good that's what qualifies it. So you look at verse 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's, there's going to be situations where it's just not possible to, to capitulate to the desires of good. Good is going to be unworkable, according to the standards before you in the world. So, but our, our, our policy is to no longer be conformed to this pattern of the world because the world's evil and the world hates God and everyone's a rebel against God, so we can't let that be our governing focus. The Word of God has to be the governing focus of what is good and what's evil. Now, you're going to demonstrate who God is and who you are in your blessing of others. And this is the great plan. It says in verse 20 that contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, it says by doing so, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Is this like, is this some kind of a, you know, nice little way of saying it's good to be vindictive? 
like to burn, burn people up on the head with coals, to drop burning coals in their heads. That sounds a little bit uh, intemperate and, and uh, unkind. Uh, what's the point of this? In general, in Scripture, burning coals are usually bad things. Like, it's always judgment. God's going to rain down burning coals on somebody. Uh, when he says, but, but here he's not saying do this in order to get back at people. He's saying do this, as verse 21 explains it, to overcome evil with good. So what these burning coals are going to be is a wake-up call. When you bless somebody, when you feed an enemy and give them drink, you're going to do something for him that he or she has no idea is coming. You know, the patterns of this world are just, you know, undermine them, attack them, destroy them like they're trying to destroy you. But when you bless them, that is going to destabilize them, and that's judo that's going to knock them off their feet. And they're going to be confronted with the gospel for maybe the first time. They've heard what you've said. Now they've seen what you've said. And, and that's, that much is clear. You're going to love your enemy in that way. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39, Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Bless him. Give him more. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Right? Now, there's going to be a day in which everyone's going to have to stand before the God of this universe and answer for our behavior. But it is not on me to bring that vengeance, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 32. And that's what Paul quotes here. Vengeance is the Lord's. Let him repay. He will. It's not me to say that. And it's going to be horrible. Jesus expresses that as well in Luke 23, 30, when he says, uh, they would wish in that day that they could be crumbled, uh, crushed under all the mountains of the earth than stand against the judgment of God. That is much as certain. Jesus says it. But we don't, we don't strike back. That is God's job. We don't play God. We shun weak and useless tactics of the world like backbiting, quest for being vindicated, being right, being angry. Those things have no power to overcome the enemy. But we overcome evil with good. We're going to disarm evil with love. And so the gospel is about enemies. You can't help but, but start to apply the gospel to enemies because they're everywhere. People will hurt you every day. But that's who we were. We were enemies. We have been overcome through powerful, pursuing love that blesses us and has laid down its weapons. Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I freely lay it down of my own accord. He lays down his life to bless us. You know, we may need to find similar strategies. When possible, we engage with this kind of warfare that takes people by surprise. When possible. As we were taken surprised by God's mercies to us. When we come to that burning coals imagery, those coals might be the very best thing. Burning coals get, a, get our attention. A dormant conscience has been there for every, every year of this life that you encounter every day. People walking around day after day, blind to God. But when they see the gospel embodied and they hear the gospel proclaimed, the conscience is awakened. And they see the judgment and the danger and they repent and believe in Jesus and trust in him. That's how it happens. It happened for you. It happened for me. It'll happen for them. We're going to do battle in a different way. We're on a war, but in a very different way. You know, a fist fight would solve nothing a lot of times. A few weeks ago, uh, my daughter and her friend group 
was uh, kicked out of their, their table at lunch by a group of mean girls. Right? They, 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 uh, they, they, they bullied him out of this table. And it, it, was, it was a very controversial day in our household. We had to, like, like you know, talk through this issue. And, like, my daughter was like, uh, I kind of wanted to hit him. You know, like, it was like, like, the, like it was, but, like, a fist fight would have solved nothing, especially because Grace is, like, 50 pounds. Uh, and so, it, like, would have been a terrible idea. And so they gave up their table in the shade to sit in the sunshine and be angry because that was unfair. You know, and so, like, they could have, uh, you know, God uh, certainly could have, uh, you know, annihilated us many times over for stealing lunch tables, right, in and, and like manner, right, as these girls did. But he doesn't just move then to do that. He actually doesn't, or he doesn't just tolerate us in our unbehavior, right? But he doesn't just ignore it, but he brings us blessings that we don't deserve. Not according to our works. We all steal lunch tables. We all hurt people. We all have been the bad guys. But he goes after the bad guys. That's the gospel. That's the mercies of God. That's like burning coals of the head. You felt it. You felt the shame. You felt the notice. You saw how bad you were. Romans 10 says, Paul says, he has a great desire for people to hear. How are they going to hear? They're going to hear by preaching and they're going to hear by doing. And we're going to bless them when they persecute us. That's what Paul says. They're going to internalize it. You know, here, you know who he is? It says, look at, look at that verse in, in 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. You know what that verse, that, that actually, uh, that word can mean also, can mean pursue. Pursue or persecute. Do you know who was a great persecutor or pursuer of Christians in the early church? This guy. That guy right there who says, bless those who pursue and persecute you. He was that guy. God saved him. Jesus spoke directly to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus spoke directly to him and said, this story's not over. I'm going to forgive you through Christ whom you persecuted. His blood, his righteousness will be yours through faith, and you will be mine. You will be my ambassador to tell the good news to the world. And that's the calling that you and I have. Paul had cursed Jesus. He had killed Christians. He had pursued them. He had persecuted them, but Jesus spoke to him, forgave him, justified him, and commissioned him as an ambassador of peace to his enemies. You and I have a majestic calling, a wonderful calling to be ambassadors of peace to the enemies of God. What a job. God is at work in heaping burning coals on your head and on me and on all the people who are chosen. Burning coals. And we, we got to take a cue from the world here, or not a cue from the world, but a cue from the gospel, and forsake thinking about our calling in worldly ways. Peter denied Jesus three times. You and I have denied him by not living this out in any stretch of the imagination. We have failed this miserably, this calling. According to our works, we don't deserve to be ambassadors. None of us do. But what better way to internalize how God deeply loves you in Christ than to repent and bless others when they persecute you because you have sullied God's name by, by sullying his reputation and your sin, but he has forgiven you and not only forgiven you, but it blessed you many times over. In so doing, you're going to preach the gospel to yourself and you're going to rescue yourself from being a legalist and viewing other people on what they can do for you and how much, how much they offer you. People that offer you nothing will be blessed because you're going to bless them in spite of their works because you don't operate on a works mindset anymore. You, work, you operate, operate in a faith mindset. 
that you were saved, not according to your works at all, not according to your obedience to the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, you're going to treat everyone like family. That's how the Father treats you. Not that you were somebody, but you're a weak, foolish thing. He chose you and offers you to sit at his table. You're like the Mephibosheth of the family. You're an enemy brought into the table. You have nothing to offer this table. You just eat. You're like a cat. You, you don't have nothing to give. Okay? That's me. Elisha saw the, the enemies of Israel in 2 Kings 6. And what did he do? He prepared a feast for them. They ate and they drank and they, sent, they were sent on their ways. They never returned again to bother the people of God. But there's a greater Elisha. And his name is Jesus. And he fed 5,000, he fed 4,000, and he feeds you every single day if we go to him. Thousands of enemies are fed. There's more room, there's more food, there's more drink than we could ever imagine. There's more gospel than can be consumed. There's more grace than there is sin in you. There's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in you. You see that the most vividly at the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do in Luke 23. He overcame evil with good. He is, our, he is our standard. He is the one who drives us. And the world is going to see that. And you know what's going to happen? They're, Satan is going to be trampled underfoot. Finally and fully under Christ's feet. Satan will be trampled as, as we overcome evil through good. Evil is going to be vanquished. Sin is going to be overturned. And righteousness is going to reign through God's people. Jesus overcame Satan in the, in the wilderness through his word. There's going to be a day in which the, the devil will then be thrown into the lake of fire. And there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more sin, no more presence of sin, no more guilt of sin, no more shame of sin. Finally, in, in 1555, Latimer and Ridley, two ministers, were, were set on fire. Literally set on fire. Burned to death. Latimer says to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have called your church to be a light to the world that will never be extinguished. We will be those who shine forth blessings instead of curses. We'll be those who forgive and bless rather than curse. By your grace, we will be those who may be burned, may be hurt, may be uh, uh, receiving aggressions in some way and shape or form this very week, and our returning blessings instead of cursings will be the thing that heaps coals on the heads of those of your enemies and awakens them to the gospel of Christ, and they seek Christ our Lord. The light will come on for someone. We pray that it comes on for many this week and many in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our, in our community.